Can I get you to turn me with me to Genesis chapter 26, continuing our series on Genesis. Genesis 26, and don't forget the outline uh, in your handout, uh, in the middle page of uh, the handout. Let me lead us in prayer as we uh, come before God and listen to his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that all scripture is uh, breathed out by you, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. We pray that now, as we uh, uh, read this passage, um, that uh, you will be doing that for us. Uh, we pray that wherever we are, each one of us here, uh, will be touched by you, will be spoken to by you, uh, and that we will respond rightly to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God had called Abraham and made him some very special promises. You remember what they are? God promised Abraham many descendants and they would become a great nation, God's people. He would give them the land of Canaan in which to live, God's place. And God would bless them and make them a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Now, if you go on in the Bible, you'll see that God does fulfill that at one level in Israel's history. By the time of Solomon, a thousand years later, Israel was indeed a great nation. God's people. They lived in the land of Canaan. God's place. They were under God's abundant blessing. Until, of course, they lost it all because of sin. As Christians, we know that the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises was in Christ. Of those who trust in Abraham, we are God's, uh, the God of Abraham, like Abraham, we are God's people. God's place for us now is, is in Christ, and, and we have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. And furthermore, God is bringing us to a new creation, not that. We'll talk about that in a minute. We are going to be with God's people. Actually, can you put it back? Sorry, yeah, James. I thought, okay, put it back here because people are looking at that and other things. This. Furthermore, God is going to bring us to the new creation. There we will be with all God's people from down through the ages. In God's place, the new heaven and new earth. Under his immediate blessing forever. God's people, God's place, under God's blessing. And so those of us who trust in God, like Abraham, have been given the same promises as Abraham. We are heirs of that same promises. Only bigger and better. The real thing. We are sons of Abraham. Heirs of his promises. And when you realize that immediately, you realize the parallel between us and the person we are reading about in our Bible reading today. Isaac. Isaac is the literal son of Abraham. He's the immediate heir to the promises that God gave to Abraham. He's generation two of the Abrahamic promises. We are also heirs of the promises that we've received in the gospel. And so, as we look at what Isaac did with the promises, then we can learn valuable lessons about what we do with the promises as well. Well, at this point, in Genesis chapter 26, Isaac is dwelling in the promised land. 
And up, yeah, he doesn't own the land, of course. The people of the land are there. But he's, but he's living there. And our passage starts with a famine in the land. Chapter 26, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. Immediately, as he comes to the passage, immediately what the Spirit does, he reminds us about the famine in Abraham's time, doesn't he? And he wants us to link what's here back to what happened to Abraham. Remember what Abraham did when he faced famine back in chapter Genesis 12? Abraham moved to Egypt. He went outside of the land of promise. God called him to the promised land and there was a famine and he left. That was a disaster. In Egypt, Abraham put his wife in danger. For the sake of his own safety, he pretended that she was his sister. King of Egypt took her into his house. And so the woman that God had chosen to be the, the mother of those through whom the blessing was passed on was now in a, in a harem of the king of Egypt. But eventually God rescued her. Abraham got told off. But he didn't really learn his lesson because in chapter 20, again he pretended his wife was his sister. And this time he said it to a Philistine king named Abimelech in a place called Gerach. Once again, he puts his wife in danger from his foolishness and fear. Once again, God intervened to save his wife and make sure the promises will continue to Abraham's descendants. And so it's very interesting to read in chapter 26, the second half of verse 1, that Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. Now, this is probably not the same Abimelech that Abraham had encountered. Uh, it's one generation later. The name Abimelech is probably like, you know, Caesar in the Roman Empire. You might meet Caesar one day and meet another Caesar, you know, 30 years later. But, you know, still called Caesar, isn't it? Or the confusing Herod at the time of Jesus. Different Herod around when Jesus was born. Different Herod is the one who, who, who crucified him. But it's probably the same with Abimelech. And furthermore, when you look at the meaning of Abimelech, Abimelech, Abi, father, Melech, king, my father is king. Sure, it's a favorite name for kings to name their sons, don't you think? And so, Abimelech, you've got another Abimelech, and you've got the son of Abraham. Now, look at the map. It's a very, uh, should we look at the map now? Okay, the last place that we've heard Isaac, uh, Isaac being is, uh, okay, uh, this is, this is, this is the modern Israel. Okay, the yellow thing here. Google Maps. I don't know. Google, Google Earth. Uh, you can actually put all the places on Google Earth. Uh, here is the last place where Isaac was known to be. Alright? Uh, Beer Lahai Roy. And up here is Gerar. Uh, that is where the, uh, that, that is where he, he moved. Uh, so assuming that he is still, uh, still here, then he's moving up north uh, to Gerar. But that was not the only option open to him, wasn't it? He could have gone the other way. He could have done what Abraham did and went down to Egypt. Uh, in fact, the Lord specifically tells him not to do that. Look at verse 2. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land I shall tell you. Don't go to Egypt, Isaac. Whatever you do, don't leave the promised land. Even if there's famine, 
even if you're not getting what you want, even if life is difficult, even if you're not seeing blessing in your time, don't leave the promised land. Don't go to Egypt. And attached to this command comes a promise, which is a repetition of the promises to Abraham. Verse 3, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens, and give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. See those blessings? Those Abrahamic blessings of the land, of descendants, of many blessings. All the promises to Abraham, God says to Isaac, they are yours. Just don't leave the land. And they are yours, not because of your righteousness, but because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my laws. Now, interesting, isn't it? That God cites Abraham's righteousness as the basis for his covenant with Isaac. When Abraham himself was the one who left the promised land to go to Egypt. And that wasn't even the worst of his mistakes. And yet God seems to have forgotten all that. He's not counting it. Remember? Abraham believed God in Genesis 15 and God credited to him as righteousness. He did not count his sin against him. God counted Abraham as if he was righteous. God declared him not guilty. Although actually we look at it, we know that he is guilty. Because he believed. How that would be possible would only become clear 2,000 years later in the New Testament. When it's revealed that all Abraham's sins were punished at the cross of Christ. That Jesus took the blame on Abraham's behalf. So that God could say to the guilty Abraham, not guilty. And in the next generation, when talking to Isaac, God is quite happily to say, Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commands, my statutes and my laws. When clearly he, he failed in labor. That is justification by faith for Isaac would inherit the promises that God gave to Abraham. And all he had to do was to stay in the land, no matter how difficult it was. And brothers and sisters, if we are heirs of Abraham, like Isaac, we are Abraham's sons, we have inherited those promises in their highest form. We are looking forward to the new creation and being with God forever. And like Isaac, we do it not because of our own faithfulness, but because of someone else's righteousness. Perfect obedience to Jesus Christ. Whose obedience far exceeds that of Abraham. And like Isaac, there's one thing God told us not to do. Do not leave the place of blessing. Our place of blessing now is in the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter how hard things get, no matter how difficult it is to obey, no matter how tempting it is to go somewhere else, don't do it. As God says to Isaac, He says to you and to me, believe, don't leave. The promises are yours. Isaac did the right thing. Instead of going south, he goes north. 
And of all the places up here, well, there are does seem a logical place. Abraham had been invited by the old Abimelech to make himself at home in the land. He dug various wells in the land that might be useful in the time of famine. Some kind of non-aggression treaty with them as well. We'll talk about that later. And so Isaac moves to Gerar. He does not make Abraham's mistake of leaving the land, but then he sins by making his father's other mistake. So now in verse 7, we're in point 3a. Isaac says in Gerar, when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. Oh boy. Not again, is that? Yes. Again. All over again. Isaac does the same thing as his father did. Even if he doesn't leave the land, he's still just as bad in the land. Sometimes he's tricky. Sometimes he can make the right decisions in the big things and then stuff things up in the loop. Even if you remain in Christ, you can still fall into sin. He can. And let me tell you, the kinds of sins you are most likely to be tempted by the kinds of sins where you're most likely to fall are the kinds of sins that you see your father or maybe if you're a girl, your mother doing. Now, of course, there are exceptions. You're probably the exception. You're thinking, oh, Andrew, what are you talking about? Right. But look at yourself carefully. Look at your parents. You are more likely to be tempted by their sins by than the random sins of other people. And when you see the sins of your parents, take warning from them and beware. You now know your weaknesses. Be careful. And furthermore, that doesn't just apply to our physical parents, also to our, our spiritual guardians as well. People that we look up to, who lead us, people who follow us up when we're new Christians, people who mentor us and disciple us, we are vulnerable to reproduce their sins, perpetuate their weakness as well. Just the way things work. If you're a leader, please work hard to set a good example. Even then you won't be perfect. Which is why a wise leader and an evil wise parent keep pointing beyond themselves to the Lord Jesus. Who truly deserve to be followed. They're not next. Well, Isaac's now pretty settled in the land. Things are going well. Everybody thinks Rebecca is a sister. Until Abimelech sees something that disturbs him. Verse 8. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out the window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebecca, his wife. Now, if you're wondering why there's a problem with him laughing, let me say that laughing is probably a euphemism for something that you do with your wife and not with your sister. Uh, you can probably speculate on what that might be. 
And so, verse 9, Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and have brought guilt upon us. You stupid man. And immediately he warns his people in verse 11. Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And so we see a contrast here between Isaac, the heir of the promises of God on the one hand, the one whom God will use to save the world, but was dumb enough and selfish enough to put his wife in danger because he was fearful of his life, and Abimelech, a pagan king, with a gasp the thought of someone sleeping with her and bringing guilt upon people because he feared God. Who's the moral guy in the story? The pimper, isn't it? You ever had that happen to you? When non-Christians turn out to be more moral than you? When, when they're trying to do the right thing and, and you're doing the wrong thing? Oh, shame on you! for a child of God. Blemish on his feet. But it happens. It happened then. It still happens now. And let me say, if you see that happening, don't think that God has failed. Don't think that the promises of God have failed. Sometimes Christians look and see non-Christians acting more morally than, than other Christians and then get disillusioned. It's not God's promises that have failed. It's our fellow believers who have failed to trust the promises. The thing to do is not to, to give up on God and give up on the promises. It's to call our siblings to repentance in light of the promises. And when we do so, remember, we have a tendency to sin as well, and tomorrow maybe someone has to rebuke us. Did Isaac have to lie and endanger his life, his wife, in order to survive? He had the promises of God. What does God want to say? But Isaac stuffed up like his father did before him, the pagan king. Shown to be more ethical than this. And yet God continues to keep his promise. Not only did he rescue Rebecca, but he also blessed Isaac in Gerard. And in the next few verses we see something of those blessings coming to fruition. It's a foretaste, really, of the big blessings to come, but, but there was, there was blessing nonetheless. Verse 12 tells us that Isaac sowed in the land. He planted a crop, which is really unusual, because those guys were all, him and his family, they were all like cattle people, weren't they? They were place to place with the cattle. He tries out something new, and boy, it's a bonanza. Verse 12. Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year hundredfold. Why? Because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich. Gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possession of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Uh, we human beings are like that, aren't we? 
all ethical and righteous on the one hand, and then you see someone doing well and get jealous. There's a simple response to the success of others, and we should not harbor it in our hearts. The Philistine envied Isaac. But before we see what happened to Isaac, uh, the narrator gives us a bit of background that will help us later. Verse 15 says, Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servant had dug in the days of Abraham his father. Remember I said how Abraham had dug wells in Gerard? Well, after Abraham died, the, 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 the Philistines came and filled them up. Uh, because to have a well on a piece of land, it's, it's, it's almost like a claim of ownership. Uh, because you can stay there, you can you can look, you can feed your flocks, you can survive there. That's just hey, this is my world, this is my this is my place. And when Abraham is gone, the Philistines fill them up, to make sure there's no place. But when Isaac was living in Gerar, he had dug them up again. And if we go down to verse 18, verse 18 is actually a flashback to what Isaac had previously done while he was living with. Uh, in Gerard, and Isaac dug again the wells of water, or Isaac had dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham, and he gave them the names his father had given them. And by giving them the same names as his father had given them, he's saying, this is my father's well, therefore this is my well. Right? Don't have to negotiate again, this is, this is it, this is mine. You guys can agree with my father, and I get to stay here. But between verse 15 and verse 18, which talks about what he did, we have verse 16 and 17. And in verse 16, Abimelech breaks the news to Isaac that he is no longer welcome there. Verse 16, Abimelech says, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. When he was small, He's scared, he's okay. But when he is rich and powerful, he's a threat and gets sent away. Doesn't matter about the agreement he has with his father, doesn't tear it up, no longer welcome. What does Isaac do? If he really was more powerful, he could fight. But instead, verse 17, so Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. He moved out into the valley. Isaac is learning to trust God. God will give him the land at the right time. A lot of time to find. Off he goes to a nearby valley where he's got to dig his own well. And even that doesn't work. Verse 19. When Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerard quarreled with Isaac's husband, saying, The water is ours. They called the name of the water Essex. means quarrel. Because they had contended. What does he do? He moves on. Verse 21. Then they dug another well. They quarreled over that as well. So he called the name Sitna. It means hostility. And he moves on again. See what's happening? Oh, it's getting pushed around. Other people in the land. But, but he takes it. He's not lying. He's not even fighting. He's just being neat and peaceful and, and letting the Philippines walk all over him. Now, I'm sure some people think that he should have been much more firm with them. But he can walk away because he knows it is only temporary. 
He can afford to be the gracious one because he knows that God will vindicate him in the end. He can afford to look like the loser because he knows God has promised him the land and so whatever happens, he will have the last life. Friends, that's got to be a lesson for us as well. We have the promises of God. We are heading for the new creation. We have eternal riches in heaven. We don't have to fight and quarrel and strive and squabble for the things that don't last yet. We don't have to cheat and lie and steal for what really is monopoly money in the end. I'll take it with us when we go. If we know where our true treasure is, if we know God's promises and are confident He will keep them, that gives us a very different perspective than, the, than that of the people who think they have to live ruthlessly in this life in order to get what they think they need. We have the promises, friends. I don't need to find them or anything less. Isaac has learned his lesson. He doesn't have to do wrong things for God, like when he lied about his wife. Trust God's promises. And you know how God kind God was? He didn't just give him the promises at the right time, he gave him a well. There and then, verse 22. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name the Hobbah, in open spaces, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. See from the map. See from the map. Gerar is here. Rehoboth is down there. Okay. Uh, so he actually moves quite a fair way, doesn't he? Uh, in order to get there. Getting the well. That was a bonus. It wasn't one of the promises. I was linked to it. He would inherit the whole land in time. But God is blessing him over and above the promises. In anticipation of the blessings to come. And friends, whenever God gives us good things, we should be grateful for them. God gives us many good things over and above His promises. It doesn't matter if He only got one of the three wells He dug. But God is still gracious to Him. He gave Him one. Yet the gift of the well is very small compared to the gift of the, of the land. And even the good things God gives us are small compared to the enormous promises that we have for the future. Be grateful for the little things. Don't fight over them. Keep your eyes on the big things of the future. It was about trusting God to keep his promises. And we saw that at the beginning, uh, before he goes there, God has confirmed his promises to him. Uh, and so that we, uh, and after that, the very thing we see when he leaves them is the promises are going to be affirmed again. Uh, and we see in verse 23, the repetition of the promises are in a place that is called Beersheba. Now, uh, Beersheba is there. Okay, so you've got Zerah, Rehoboam, ah, Rehoboam, blah. Rehoboam, and then here is Beersheba. We're not told why uh, Isaac moves to Beersheba, uh, but it, is, it was a place where Abraham lived when Isaac was a kid. And here's what happens in Beersheba, verse 24. The Lord appeared to him that same night and said, 
I am God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and will bless and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Here's a very important thing he's saying. He's saying, Isaac, fear not. Remember? What was it that caused Isaac to lie about his wife and put her in danger? Fear And God says, fear not. People of the land have been mucking around with him. And God says, fear not. I am with you. That is the important thing. I will bless you and multiply your offspring for the sake of my servant Abraham. My promises are secure. And brothers and sisters, the Lord our God said the same thing to us. If we have God's promises, then there is no need to fear. We have eternal security. We say just now, forever and always secure, didn't we? That is fixed. Everything else is minor by comparison. What are you afraid of? Someone told me the other day about, or someone spoke to me the other day about, about ending up in an old folks home. Friends, you don't end up in an old folks home. That's just a temporary place to stay. You end up in the new creation. You don't end up in poverty. You may suffer in poverty, but you end up with your eternal inheritance. You don't end up in jail. You may go to jail for serving Jesus, but you end up in heaven. You don't end up single or unhappily married. You may be single or unhappily married for the rest of your life, but you end up as part of the bride of Christ in perfect intimate relationship with him. You don't end up forgotten or unloved. You may be forgotten here, but God will never forget you if you belong to Him. If you're afraid of ending up in an old folks' home, then remember the promises. Those are the big things. If we have the promises, then we don't need to fear everything else is in perspective. Remember the song we sometimes sing? There is a world where love is true, a world where no one lies, where hate and anger are unknown, friends don't say goodbye. A world with Jesus on his throne, and I'll be there with him his own. Nothing else matters at all. There is a world with shadows gone, a world with no more light. The sun will shine through every day, the wrongs will be made right. All sin and darkness cast away, forgiven, free, with him will stay. Nothing else matters. Our houses, money, dreams and plans are mixed and nothing more. Like grass without the summer rain, they'll pass away for sure. But Christ forever is the same, and when I hear him call my name, nothing else matters. Fear not. You have God conscience. Everything else comes into the same.
Elijah received the promise of God over again, a reminder of the gospel for him. And so what does he do in verse 25? Let me close his Bible. What does he do in verse 25? He builds an altar and calls the name of the Lord, responds to the gospel promises of worship, pitches his tent there, wants to live close to where God revealed him, to him, and of course his servants take a well. And the next thing you know, who should turn up? But Abimelech. All the way from Gerard. Now you can imagine how Isaac suddenly saw him, right? Uh, look in verse 26. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar, and Ahuzath, his advisor, and Psycho, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to see me, seeing that you hate me and sent me away from you? Fair enough question, isn't it? Well, they're not exactly long lost friends. Huh? Isaac hadn't, you know, invited him to come and stay with us whenever you want a holiday in Beersheba, you know. So say what? Verse 28. We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there, be a, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us. And let us make a covenant with you. That, we, that you will do us no harm, just as if we not touched you. And have not done to you, and have done to you nothing but good. And have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. Wow. How cool is that? People of the land have come to realize that God is with Isaac. And it's blessed. And they come all the way down. Why? Because they want to make a treaty. Remember how God promised Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and those who curse you, I will curse, and all the nations of the earth will bless through you. But here we've got one of the families of the nations coming to Isaac and saying, in anticipation of the day when people from every nation will come to Isaac's greatest descendants and find peace in him. So you've got to say that speech to Isaac was a little bit distorted, huh? Yes. True, they didn't harm Isaac. Well, it might be a slight exaggeration to say they did nothing but good and sent him away in peace. But Isaac's not going to argue with that. He's a genuinely peaceable guy. He can afford to be, as he knows he's got God's promises. Back in Genesis 21, his father had made a covenant with the Philistines in the same place and and now he will do so as well. And so in verse 30, So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way. And they parted from him in peace. He's got to deal with them. He's not going to get hassled by them anymore. And not only that, he gets, he gets more good news. Verse 32, On that same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug and said to him, We have found water. And he called it Sheba. Sounds like oath. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Same name that Abraham had given it, because he's still doing the same kind of thing. Naming after his death. So, God has provided for Isaac peace in the land. The people of the land acknowledge that God is with him. God has provided water for him also. His cattle, his people are secure. He's unlikely ever to want to move from that land of blessing ever again. He's it's a happy ending, isn't it? The story that started in famine and then sin. Now, let's remind ourselves. What did Isaac do 
to achieve this? What, what was the great strategy he had? What was, what was his cunning plan? There wasn't, was there? He stuffed up with his wife. He gave in on every fight. He just sowed seed where he could and dug wells where, 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 dug wells where he could and that was about it, really. And yet God made him wealthy and prosperous and blessed him richly in the land. Why? Because of his promises to Abraham. That's it. You wonder why that the story of Generation 2 is set here between two stories about Generation 3. Remember last year? We had Generation 3 already, haven't we? Jacob and Esau. Next week we'll see Generation 3 again, Jacob and Esau. Why did you put this one in the middle, middle of them? Why did you put them before? There's a contrast, isn't there, between Isaac and his son. Just before I, this passage we saw Esau despising the promises, and Jacob ruthlessly manipulating him to get the promise. Just after this passage, we see Esau marrying foreign wives from the land, again showing his failure to appreciate the promises of God, and we will see Jacob blatantly deceiving his father to get the blessings. And as the, as the narrative turns to focus on Jacob over the next few weeks, we will see over and again how he's going to lie and cheat and connive to get the promises. And yet Isaac has learnt very quickly that all he has to do is to trust the God who gives it. Jacob could have saved himself many years of pain if he had learnt that lesson from his father. Brothers and sisters, learn that lesson yourself. Whatever you are facing in life, no need to lie, no need to cheat, no need to steal, no need to take revenge. In your ministry, no need to manipulate, no need to exaggerate for the sake of the kingdom, no need to employ questionable tactics in evangelism or anything like that, no need to fret over evildoers who try and stop you. God is in control. Promises are the promises. Be confident. Do not fear. He will bring them to pass. Be like Jesus, who entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, and is crowned with glory and honor. Trust God, do what is right. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land.